What did you want to be when you grew up? What did I want to be when I grew up? I'm not sure I ever really had a life plan. I would probably say something that was that, that I, I did a placement when I was a student and I did it on campsites in France. I didn't, I wasn't taking languages. I just managed to spawn a, a placement abroad. And um, it was a campsite and I was, uh, I, was, uh, I was called a responsable. So I was the campsite host for uh, a British camping company. So you as a customer would self-drive to Brittany and you would you would stay in one of our tents and it, they, they were quite nice tents had fridges and cookers and stuff but it was quite a short drive so i think there was quite a lot so i think a lot of customers thought that because they were in france the weather would be amazing um but actually it's just off the south coast of britain so the weather yeah. was not amazing and there was but it was quite a cheap holiday i suppose so people were putting their toe in the water for foreign holiday foreign holiday but i think to me it was that really got to me was how important that week that fortnight was for quite a lot of the families that that came to stay and i'm sure you're aware camping in the rain is really not much fun mm. and i kind of thought i'm not sure that i wanted a job that i would want to be away from so much that even camping in the rain felt like you know better than being at work so yeah. I, I did kind of make a, a subconscious decision to not do anything that i didn't enjoy and it probably also coincided with not earning much money in the jobs that I've done. Um, mm. But I've been kind, kind of okay with that, I think. So the arts generally is not particularly well paid. There are a few people who make a lot of money from it, but by and large, the foot soldiers don't. So, so I don't think it was actually a career I had in mind, but it was certainly a, a kind of a vocation, I suppose, in terms of work-life balance. And I've just been, I think there's been 15 months that I haven't enjoyed working in 50 years. So it's not, well, 45 years. So not bad, not bad. But yeah, to answer your question, it's not a footballer, it's not an astronaut, it's not prime minister, um, none of the above. But yeah, just, I suppose, yeah, um, just being happy felt really important from quite a young age. Leeds, Leeds, Leeds. What is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called now, and an activity called work. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. You're listening to episode 28, and to my guest, Chris Lloyd, this is another Zoom interview recorded on the 5th of October 2021. Hello! It's been a while, hasn't it? Well, strap in, there has been stuff going on, and you will get to hear it all soon. First, though, we're going to round out Series 2, for now, with this episode. This will be followed by a special bonus episode to kick off Series 3. Episodes 29 and 30, which are still planned as part of Series 2, will hopefully come out at some point soon. I'm still waiting for clearances on those two interviews, though, so keep your fingers crossed for me on those. These early episodes have trained me in making podcasts, and in making this podcast in particular. These first two seasons of Working Hours have allowed me to learn about the show and about how to make this show, what the show is and what I want it to be. I have made a variety of different episodes, heavily edited ones, I've released uncut interviews, I've started episodes off with static introductions, I've started them with cold opens, I've tried different music, um, and I currently seem to have settled down into asking pretty much a set bunch of questions, for now at least. I know what I want from working hours, and hopefully by 28 available episodes that are free to listen to, you should too. I do have more episodes recorded, and I have a backlog of editing and transcription to do, I'm very, very behind with it all. It's been a real call to reach 30 episodes. There's lots of reasons for that, but a major one is support. I really need support now. 
I need to get to 50 episodes as soon as I can. And because this project is completely reliant on loiners in order for me to make the show at all, I really, really need you, Leeds, to be my guest. Listeners will come and find the show, but not without you to listen to. So once again, the deal is you need to be from Leeds or in Leeds and you just need experience of working or at least an opinion on work. If you're not in the paid workforce, I'd still love to hear from you. So that's it. That's all you need. You can appear anonymously on the show or you can use it to promote yourself or even your business. You can do it for posterity, for fun or just to think about your job out loud in a new way or for any other reason. Tell me your reason for being on working hours. Drop me an email at workinghourspod at western-studios.com Add a short bio and some suggestions of your availability into your email and I will get back to you as soon as I can. So the thing about getting in more interviews more often is that there will be more content to deal with and so elements of my production will need to change because of that. I can't keep doing working hours the way I have been doing it if I want to get to a thousand episodes. Um, so my work on working hours needs to change so that I can hit the first 50 episodes uh, so that I can get those out to listeners and do that in a timely and consistent manner. I need to do that in order to ramp up production to reach the first 100 and then 250 and then 500 and eventually the 1000th episode in 2030. The first two seasons, the first two years of working hours have followed a release pattern that you might have clocked, but this has held back the release of episodes. I have had episodes ready to go that I couldn't release because I was waiting for clearance for another episode just in order to keep my release pattern. And this has meant that I have had to have an erratic release schedule for the first two years of this show's life. This does nothing to service my listenership, who don't know when and where they should expect to find a new episode of Working Hours, and I am sorry about that. I won't be able to offer any regularity to publishing, though, until I have a successful funnel running for getting interviews coming in at a high enough rate that I'm able to release episodes consistently for listeners. I have to stack these so that I have some waiting to go and waiting for approval on others won't slow me down too much. When I started working hours, I imagined it being much more critical of work, labour and working. I expected to speak to more people who didn't like work. I imagined whistleblowers telling me shocking tales and I imagined people yearning for better roles and better pay. Instead, so far, I have found that nearly all my guests really enjoy their work and that's great. It's made for great interviews and conversations for me, but I do wonder if I'm really just limited in my type of guest. What if I'm stuck within the tiny social media bubble that I've managed to eke out through one part intent and two parts the random alchemy of the magical algorithms? Am I only reaching online people? Am I over-representing self-employed people? And what if I never get to interview a shelf stacker from Asda? I do believe in this show now in a way I couldn't have in the last two years because now it's there. there. There is a show. It is something now. And although it's small and only growing slowly, that is happening. Working Hours is a podcast that's now well on its way to its first 30 episodes, its first 500 unique listeners and its first 1,000 downloads. And that's not a big thing. But it is something, and it is something that has grown and will continue to do so. So what about you? What are you here for? I told you mine, now it's your turn. I'm asking you, you listening, yes you, what do you want out of this? What do you want to hear more of or less of? I have mentioned Patreon and donations at various points on this show, but I haven't really pushed that up until now. So 
here is how it actually is. I need to clear 300 quid a month on this show to make it possible for it to continue over the long term. And I need to do that as soon as possible. I was hoping I could do this through donations and Patreon memberships. I would still like to do so. However, the fact of the matter is that I cannot increase my production and output for this show until I can reach that minimum financial goal. If I can reach that amount, then I can increase my production and output so that I can get to being able to putting out a show every week. From there, I want to get up to two shows a week, which is going to be necessarily towards the end of this decade when that happens. And this project in order for me to actually hit my goal of 1000 episodes. If I can find a way to get to 300 quid a month for this show as soon as possible, then I can start getting out more episodes to listeners more often, find more new listeners, and really start growing this audience and this show. Now, podcast advertising is a very trendy area, and the gold spot of any podcast advertising is an in-show ad read. So if there were or are any leads businesses that would be interested in podcast sponsorship opportunities or paying for ad reads on the show, then I would be really interested in hearing from you right now. As it's getting easier to make this show, it's also getting harder to make the show. I'm saying all of this because currently I'm deciding many things about how I want the show to feel, be and sound going forward and also what I will need to do to keep making it and how I am going to edit and produce the show. I'm trying to decide if I want to keep it loose and chatty, make it more professional, more political, less political. Do I want to edit at the level I have been or let it be more raw and real? It's a documentary, but it's also something my guests might want to use to promote themselves or their work. I don't need to endorse anybody I interview, and that wouldn't be right for working hours to do that, but the show does allow for self-promotion for my guests. Working Hours is a show about our similarities and the differences in that shared being. We are all leads and we all work, even those who don't actually do. Working Hours wants to illustrate these differences as we find them in one city at one time. It's a show that wants and intends to be as truthful about our current social arrangements as those arrangements will allow us to be. So I have questions to answer and if you would be so kind, you can help me with those questions or not. I will find answers. Do you want more of an intro for my guests, by my guests, or from my guests? Or am I providing you with enough detail? Do you like being able to fill in some of the blanks for yourself, or do you want the picture painted for you more? Do you like the discovery element of this show, or do you want to be led by it more? Do I need to work more to explain things, or are you following along fine with whatever's being said? Are you happy with the quality are you happy with the quality? Are you happy with the quality of the Zoom calls? Do you want to hear the sound of face-to-face recordings on the show again? How do you feel about fails or glitches from Zoom chats in the episodes, background sounds? Do they add authenticity or take you out of the chat? Does there need to be more of me or less of me in the show, in the interviews? Do the questions and how I ask them need to be more tied down or do I need to go back to a more improvisational style? Do you want to hear me thank the guests on the recording or do you like them having the final word in the interview? Do you like the varied length of the shows? Do you like the longer ones? Do you like them shorter? Have you listened to more than one show? If so, why? What made you come back? I really like the cold opens. I like the format at the moment and I'm leaning more towards less editing on forthcoming episodes, but I would love to hear what anyone else has to say on these matters. There's a lot of deciding to do here. If you want to help me with any of that, then send your thoughts to workinghourspod at western-studios.com. Anyway, 
that's the big babble for me there and I don't usually like to say so much on here but I need to get that out to whoever is listening to the show. Okay so let's get into this episode. Chris Lloyd is a producer with Red Ladder Theatre Company and has been with them for over 10 years. Red Ladder originally started in London, coming out of radical 1960s agitprop theatre, and they continue to still put on new and original theatre in both traditional and in non-traditional venues here in Leeds in the 2020s. Chris is still in constant awe of the talent he has to work with at Red Ladder. We talk about what is settling down to be the usual working hours questions now, discussing working in theatres through our changing times, climates, trade relations and strategies to dealing with global pandemics. To find out more about Red Ladder Theatre, go to www.redladder.co.uk or follow them at Red Ladder on Twitter or facebook.com forward slash Red Ladder Theatre. If you disagree with anything on this episode, especially me, then get yourself on the show. Unless you've nothing to do with leads, of course, in which case then just shush, I guess. Or you can sign up to the £5 non-loiner Patreon tier, and then I'll listen to whatever you have to say, and reply to it too. So be a mensch and go to patreon.com forward slash working hours pod right now, and sign up to help me record 1,000 loiners over this decade, as they tell me, what is it that you do now? So what is it that you do now then? So my title is producer for Red Ladder Theatre Company. And that term has, well, I think when I first started working in the arts, that term was called administrator. Um, then it became general manager. Then it became chief exec. And then it became producer. I think it, the role encompasses all the things that facilitate putting the show on stage, I suppose. So contracting, money, fundraising, auditing, uh, all the kind of procurement and invoicing that goes with a small business. And it's supporting all the creative functions that, that get put together to make a show, I suppose, and, and the logistics of making sure rehearsal space is booked, the tour is booked, people get paid on time, people eat, people don't get um, abused. Uh, so policies, uh, risk assessments. Yeah, it's all the bits really that I suppose as a customer you wouldn't really see in one of our shows, but mm. it's all those bits that go into making it hopefully pleasurable to work for us. Mm. Is is that still pleasurable for you though? It sounds like a lot of form filling and a lot of uh, bureaucracy that you maybe didn't want uh, to sign up for. Uh, I suppose. <laughs> um, I when I was younger, I worked in London, worked at Theatre in London. They would do a staff pantomime every year. And I did that a couple of years and it was the most nerve wracking thing I ever did. And it would be a short, you know, old cabaret style term that would last maybe four minutes. And I would dread it for the rest of the year. So I have a huge respect for A, actors, but B, people who are creative. And it's, I suppose I get by vicarious pleasure, lots of vicarious pleasure by seeing how brilliant some of the creatives were, you know, some of the writers, some of the designers, some of the acting direction, all of those component parts are going to make a good show. I don't really have that, that skill set, but I like to think that I can meld a team together that produce more than the sum of the parts. Really. So, yes, I mean, running a small a small company is <coughs> very bureaucratic. It's probably, oh, I mean, we are funded by the Arts Council, which is amazing, but come with, with that is a lot of monitoring, a lot of evaluation, um, mm. which is it's fine. I mean, it's public money and it's right, um, but it's probably... For the money we get, it's probably not particularly less arduous than it would be if we got 10 times the money. Mm. So a bit like, you know, your um, 
payroll, for instance, whether you've got two people or 20 people, it's not actually, it's not 10 times harder to do 20 people. Um, yeah. And two. So I think, yes, there is a lot of bureaucracy. Yes, there is a lot of, I suppose you, you could call it jumping through hoops, um, mm. but we are in possession of public funds. I'm very fortunate to be in that position. So I don't, I don't really see people can grumble about that too much. Maybe, maybe half the administration would do, but you know, hey, <laughs> not for half the money though. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how did you, how did you get into it? How did you sort of come to Red Ladder, and how did you actually get into theatre and the producing side then? When I was at school. I went to the grammar school in Leeds, which was then where the University Business School is now. Um, mm. So Clarendon Road, and I used to walk through the university, past the, what was the playhouse, used to be part of the university back then, yeah. in the university sports hall, I think. Um, so I used to work there on um, afternoons and evenings, selling mm. bars and, and tearing tickets and watching lots of plays. and. Then I, when I was older, worked behind the bar and in the catering bit. And I just loved the environment. I just really loved the environment of people mm. coming to my place of work to enjoy themselves. It was quite refreshing. Yeah. Um, people still moan, it's Yorkshire. But um, I, I just, I really liked that environment where, um, by and large, people were doing a job they really loved um, yeah. and being paid to do it, which was great. And also, you know, by and large, the customers were there to be entertained, and you know, uh, I didn't, I didn't have to sell them anything. You know, it wasn't, and there was no stress involved with it. You know, by and large, it was a, you know, a very collaborative work work environment, if you like. People enjoyed buying what we were selling, and we didn't have to, you know, um, force them to do that. They were there under their own free will. So, so I mean, I probably started there when I was fifteen or sixteen, selling sweets and stuff and then i worked, worked behind the bar with mark Allman for a bit he used to work there um yeah himself. um and then i when i left school i was thinking oh, mm. i was done with education till i worked a bit and i thought no i'm done with working i'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll go to college so I, I i applied really late to, to, to go to Leeds polytechnic as was Leeds met now Leeds beckett now sorry um mm. I did a business degree there, which I thought was a great idea because it gave me a, a, a ground in lots of different disciplines. Yeah. And also for a job, and they say, why did you do business studies? It's actually really transparent. You had no clue what you really wanted to do. <laughs> so I kind of, kind of got bit in the bum then. But um, my sister worked at a, started working at Theatre in London, and she said there was a box office job going if you want to come down to London. I thought, well, why not? So. I stayed at that theatre for seven years um, and then I worked my way up to be kind of front of house managing and in control of the bars and all the public areas. Yeah. So health and safety and all the kind of public facing stuff. And then I left there and went to work in another theatre in London for a year and then I went travelling for three years. So, but I, by then I, I did theatre, not entertainment, definitely theatre was my kind of chosen vocation. Um, and when I came back from I lived in Spain for three years, came back, not doing anything to do with theatre. Got a job in West Cumbria overlooking the um, Irish Sea, which was which was a great job. I loved that. It was like it was like having your own pub, really. It's a tiny theatre and you you were like the landlord, really. People knew you because there was only two of us worked there and um, a whole raft of volunteers which kept the place afloat. And uh, it was a multi, multi-arts discipline. So there was classical music, there was folk music, there was film, there was theatre, there was tribute bands, music. 
so it was great i really liked working there and, and made a lot of friends and it yeah the hours were long but um that was really rewarding and again huge wealth of talent required to put on the stage and, and a huge there was a really active youth theater and it's great seeing the kids kind of get the bug and and mm. i think something really profound there i remember this lad was in the youth theater and um quite a tall and gamey lad really nice but he had a profound you know, nope. profound stutter and i you know i said earlier about the staff pantomimes they scared the living daylights out of me but this lad when he was on stage his stutter would go i mean it was incredible he, he mm. i mean he was a brilliant actor and i i don't know how i don't know how he did it i don't know by being someone else maybe i don't I yeah. know how the you know the the new new the neurons worked in his brain to try and divorce the two but i mean yeah it's mm. uh, so just little little wins like that along the way are just just magical i think um then i moved to wakefield theater royal stayed there a little while a little stint at the playhouse on the turn to cover for someone and then the red ladder job came up which never seen anything by them but they were well established theater company um mm. and they offered me a job so that was that, that was a <laughs> at that stage um and I'd never worked for producing theatre company before. I'd always worked in a building that kind of bought bought yeah. in um, work rather than made it. So it was it was brilliant seeing it from the other side and seeing a project from you know a very small seed turn into you know a big production. It's always been always been great. So that's that's how I've come to be at Red Ladder. It's fifteen years ago now I started. So um, yeah, and and never a dull day. My initial thought was uh, maybe there's a period of time where you know. All through that, I'm guessing that you're 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 able to see shows where you're in all these venues and you can go in and you know you get to see them and maybe not as many times as you want, but you know enough. And I'm thinking as you go through the process, maybe you're drawn more away from being able to see the shows. But it sounds like they've been pretty present throughout because you know moving to Red Ladder and then seeing them from their kind of inception through to you know being put on has that been constant? Then have you have you been away from the theatre? because of work or have you always got to see the shows that you wanted to see i have a bit of a confession to make really i'm not not actually a huge fan of theater generally i didn't study drama or theater at school or college i'm not a big fan of the classics i, mm. I, I suppose i'm a bit of a bit of a heathen i really we're a new writing company and i think that is very mm. exciting working with a writer and, and working with and alongside them to you know to to pull out the story which has never been heard before you know and mm. i I kind of blanch a little bit when when Shakespeare gets done the time and time and time again, and I kind of see a whole raft of writers struggling to get airtime on stages and get commissioned. I mean, a lot of people love Shakespeare, so it's really mealy mouth for me to say that. But I kind of think, you know, 400 years old, you know, surely you should give someone else a go. You know, mm -hmm. um, from that point of view, I do like new writing, which is why Red Eyes is great. There are a few mm -hmm. theatre companies that I would go and see travel to see but not many um we're very fortunate we've got a good relationship with the playhouse next door our, our office is just over the way from the playhouse so we get mm. to quite a lot of work that's put on there some of which is brilliant some of which is just not my cup of tea it didn't mean it's mm. not well made it's just just doesn't really excite me so and mm. um, i did i did get offered a job a few years ago and this i hadn't realized at the time but it became a bit of an acid test was um would my kids thank me if I made them come and see the work from that theatre company? And the answer, so I turned the job down, was no, I don't think they would. It wouldn't excite them. So mm. I, I, my kids are quite a good litmus test for the work we make, I think. 
because it's new, it's like Bible, it's issue-based makes it sound a bit worthy. It's not really issue-based, but there will always be politics with a small p in there. There'll always be, you know, the word struggle will be in there somehow. The words of, you know, giving voice to those who, who maybe don't always get heard is in there. Mm. A lot of that messaging I, I really, you know, kind of stand behind in terms of the work we produce. So, and it's entertaining. Um, we had a board away day a few, good few years ago. We probably spoke for about an hour about this word entertainment. And there was a faction that was very pro the word. And there was a few dissenting voices. And I think, I don't know when people are coming to see your work, they want to be entertained. You know, it doesn't have mm. to be all, you know, high kicks and, and jazz hands, but, you know, they've got to have enjoyed the experience. It might be, you know, harrowing at times, but yeah, I, I don't think entertainment's a bad word, you know, and I kind of think that people go to the theatre for escapism a bit, you know, even if it's mm. about other people's lives, it's maybe educational, but not, you know, it can be told in an entertaining, um, entertaining way. So, but yeah, and, I, and we make work that, you know, people enjoy and come back and see time again, and that's important. Mm. So do the works, I, I mean, do most of these go on, what, what's their life after they've been with you? Uh, ooh, we've got a warehouse, we've got quite a few. <laughs> Generally, the rhythm is work with the writer, rehearse, tour, not always tour, because some, some work we, we put in certain sites or site-specific. Um, in the old days, it get put in the skip. Um, these days, it gets put in the warehouse. Um, on the off chance, we'll bring it back out again, which is rare. It's, I suppose, some of the work feels like it can be of the moment, but even if it takes 18 months to write um, or stage. Um, we've had a couple of shows that have come out a couple of times. Damned United, we produced, that's come out every year for six years now. So that's, that, that is one that does have you know, an afterlife, if you like. There are some shows that I don't know just feel right for the moment, and then I don't know, just doesn't seem quite right to bring them out again. Mm. The, the trouble we have at the moment, I mean, we'll, I guess we'll come on to this in, in, in due course, is, is because of the pandemic, quite a lot of our work, our work is, is small scale. Mm. So it would go into studio spaces in theatres or sometimes on their medium sized stages, rarely on their big stages. Mm. Um, and because of the pandemic, a lot of the studio spaces are so small that with social distancing, it's just just yeah. not economic to open. Yeah. So I, I think the, the worry now at the moment is that all of the small scale product has concertinaed up um, over 18 months. So it's not just venues making their own work, it's touring theatre companies like us. So we're, we're fighting, you know, it's a lot of product to go into not many spaces and quite a few theatres still haven't opened up their studios because... Yeah. Just because they can be a bit claustrophobic, I suppose, and studios tend to be, although I'm sure architects wouldn't say this, but tend to be a bit of an afterthought. They tend to be, oh, what space have we got left? Oh, great, we've got studio fit in there. So they can be either subterranean or claustrophobic or just not very accessible um, or, you know, very high up or very low down. So that I think if you're worried about being in a, an enclosed environment, they're not brilliant spaces by and large. So, so one of the reasons we don't tour work again is is that you know there's a lot of demand a lot of supply and not as much um, demand so and we like to create at least new one new piece a year and that's that's probably what we tour we have recently filmed three shows mm. old old shows and um, so we've got them back out of their boxes so that that'll be coming on stream via the playhouse hopefully 
um, towards the end of October, early November. So th they will get an afterlife, but in a, you know, obviously in a digital format rather than live. I was, I was going to, you know, take us into how you went through the pandemic and what happened and, and how you got there. But I was also going to ask about any sort of interactive theatre or any sort of like online theatre. So, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned it there, but it's take us through lockdown and through what's happened through the pandemic i mean i i would imagine that you would have had shows either in production or in you know in development and everything's all of a sudden closed down and you know you will have lost people you would have tried to keep people what what happened yes yeah, so um in terms of company structure we've got two full-time employees that's me producer and our artistic director rod we also have a 2.5.5 and um, marketing managers sasha and um, the rest of our staff is freelance so um we were in the fortunate position mainly due to furlough being able to although this didn't directly pay for freelance staff we managed to keep our freelance admin staff on on their contracted hours completely through the, the pandemic which was great for us to have some kind of continuity but also obviously help them when the pandemic struck we were halfway to a tour of a production called smile club um mm. we'd opened that at the playhouse in early march and then i think the final performance was on the 14th and then on the monday the 16th is when there was this rather woolly advice from boris that it wasn't illegal for theaters to open but mm. uh, the advice was don't go to them so um, <laughs> <laughs> it was just so frustrating because obviously in terms of contracts in terms of insurance you know all of those elements no one really knew you know so it wasn't where you like, stood yeah absolutely yeah so we we so we had to abandon that tour the idea was to postpone it because obviously right at the beginning of the pandemic the thought was weeks possibly months but not mm. 80. um we managed we paid the actor and stage manager in full for that contract which was had another month to run and then we just spent time rescheduling shows after shows and rescheduling and rescheduling. And then it got to July. And the, the, the intelligence at that point was that this was by the by the autumn, we would be, you know, we'd have broken the back of it and we'd be back running, maybe not on full kilter, but on yeah. economically enough kilter to warrant staging shows again. And we had this idea, well, it was written a piece um, called My Voice Was Heard. Uh, but it was ignored and it was very much about black experience in England from a teacher's perspective and a pupil's perspective, very powerful piece. Um, mm. And it wasn't a, as a direct result of what happened with George Floyd, but it was our response, if you like. We didn't, we purposely didn't put out any particular messaging. Mm. I think that, that was an internal wrestle as to the correct wording um, from a white-led organisation about supporting, you know, both George Floyd but also Black Lives Matter movement. And um, so we thought that the ideal response was to make some work, you know, exploring, exposing some of the issues within England, Britain. Um, so that we we fast forwarded that project, um, and that was due to tour in December last year. So we had the tour booked. Uh, we had. <coughs> We were opening at the Playhouse. We did the all the rehearsals with kind of COVID measures in place, like um, you know masks and and distancing and mm. signing in and temperature checks and COVID checks and all that kind of thing. 
we did the dress re uh, technical rehearsals at Burton, the dress rehearsal, and then I think on the Friday of that week when we were due to open, the lockdown was reinstalled. Leeds was mm. still in tier three, but they changed the premise of what tier three, what you could do within tier three. Previously, you'd been allowed to open theatres. Yeah. The new regime, theatres were closed. So <laughs> they distributed quite a lot of cash through something that was called the Creative Recovery Fund for arts organisations yeah. and, and cultural organisations, which meant that helped enormously. And then everyone thought, well, well Christmas would be fine. So people spent millions on Christmas productions. Lo and behold, no, close all that. So all the money that's given with one hand, I was kind of taken away instantly by that decision. I'm not saying it's the wrong or the right decision, but it was a change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it came really late on so that all the, you know, the financial commitment being made for Christmas shows, we were lucky we had a relatively small casting crew. So we, but again, we paid, we had a sufficient surplus reserves to be able to pay people in full for what, what would have been that tour. Um, mm. So again, really disappointing. We did get, I mean, what was, we were fortunate that we managed to work through to dress rehearsal stage. So we knew that the show worked. We knew that the design worked. We had all the lighting cues mm. um, programmed in. So the show was made in effect. So all we now need to do, which we will do in a month's time, is dust it down, put it back together and re-rehearse for a week. And then we'll see mm. it again, opening at the Playhouse virtually a year to the day than it, than it would have happened. So we lost a number of performances we didn't lose any staff which was good the smile club tour was shelled during that time in february the, the following february we decided to apply for some additional funding to make three films one of which was smile club so when we've made that hopefully audiences that would have seen it on the tour can now see it in its digital form one was a damn denied because we feel that it's got a universal following and and you know beyond these shores i think there's lots of Leeds fans everywhere and, and derby fans and not tourist fans who would be very interested in seeing the stage show film is mm. very popular the book is very popular mm. and then the third film and um, the, the third third play we filmed was a show called glory which was written by um um leeds and bradford journalist nick i had don't know if you know nick at all he, no. he's, you see radio shows does front room mm. uh, he wrote the show about wrestling um which is not our normal um, format for a show, but we toured a, a wrestling ring. Um, mm. And it became, I mean, it's a brilliant piece of writing. It, it was a kind of microcosm for racism. And, and it wasn't really about Brexit, but there was definitely a, an undercurrent of, um, within some of the characters, suspicion of incomers uh, into Britain. And you saw very polarised views from three lads who had wrestling as their common bond but they had huge issues with other races for you know um for very real reasons um it just they tarred a whole faith or race with the blame for certain incidents they'd suffered personally which mm. you know as the play wears on they realize that that is you know they, they can't tire everyone so unreasonable so. yeah but, but th their pain was very real and they uh, had suffered. Um, so it's a brilliant piece of writing. It got you thinking the, <laughs> the main protagonist or the, the guy in the middle of the hub, if you like, was a character called Jim Glory. I mean, he was a real throwback to um, wrestling in the 70s and 80s. He was kind of, you know, he's a fictional character, but he, he, he was, his heyday was in the days of, I don't know if any of these names were like Giant Haystacks and Big Daddy. And, yeah. 
this kind of cartoony um, wrestling. He was an interesting character because you liked him, but he mm. was incredibly inappropriate. He was incredibly stuck in a time war. His language was from, you know, the eight seventies and eighties. But mm. he meant he meant well. He was I don't know. He, you just liked him, um, and you would cringe a bit some of the things he said. And actually, but he had a heart of gold. So he was. It's a brilliant piece of writing. So we filmed that, and the action sequences, the, the fighting, uh, is incredible. I have to say, the lads—they're they're all trained in combat, stage combat, mm -hmm. drama storm. But we had a fight director called Kevin McCurdy who came up, and um, his real passion is wrestling, so it worked really well for him. But he, he does mm -hmm. stunts for you know Bond films. So, you know, he does a lot of quite big feature films. But because he really likes wrestling, he kind of took this small project on. And within mm -hmm. two days, he had these lads doing amazing wrestling moves, you know. And it, they are, you know, when you watch it, you do wince and you kind of think, oh, yeah. so well trained, you, you know. And the other thing is, because it's in, in the round, you can't really pull that much because obviously if it's end on, you yeah. can hide as much heavier. But because it's in the round, they are real throws and they're not real punches, but they are, you know, incredibly well timed. And and mm. um, I've just we've just edited that film last week and uh, it's come out really well. And I'm looking forward to seeing that again. And uh, um, it's just another. We did a, we did also did a podcast at the beginning of the first lockdown um, called Connected, which was about two lads who meet every Wednesday in the pub, chat shit to each other, um, price of eggs, one sport in Leeds, mm. one sport in Liverpool. As the season was progressing, was 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 Leeds were going to get promoted for the first time in 16 years, or were they? Liverpool were going to win the league for the first time in 30 years, or were they? Was the pandemic going to scupper this? And the, as the podcast wore on, the pandemic wore on, and it was kind of a parallel commentary on. So they they, they weren't able to then meet in the pub, so they'd have a beer on Zoom, and then yeah. um, as it got more and more serious, one of his parents contracted it, and was they survived or not but it was just a mirror of what two normal lads you know from being mm. quite you know quite dismissive of this you know this virus to start with and the closer it got to home the realization that it was you know and then uh, one of the lads who was who did the podcast was stevie ward that used to play for Leeds rhinos i don't know if you know anything about Leeds rugby but yeah he was captain of Leeds rhinos at the time so um nice. uh, obviously his kind of acting break or uh, acting um debut if you like yeah on uh, audio but yeah so we've done a bit of digital projects some of that is to future proof it you know if we can't play live again um some yeah. of it is about having really powerful shows some of it you know hopefully we'll be able to recoup a bit of cash from selling them but you know i'm not sure how yeah we're not being unrealistic that we're going to be able to retire on on the proceeds of those i'm not sure digital mm. digital theater is you know that lucrative but it also gave quite a lot of work to quite a lot of actors and, and creatives as well. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of non-traditional methods and stuff. I mean, you you play, your productions play in all sorts of venues, non-traditional venues. Like, I assume you go into schools as as well as, like, other buildings. and We rarely go into schools. The company kind of reflects the artistic director. They're a small company, so it is a bit like being, as I said earlier, a bit like being a landlord in a way. Mm. Um, where it revolves around the ethos and the passion and the lived experience of the artistic director. Prior to Rod taking over, we did do quite a lot of work in youth clubs and schools. That work, it became harder and harder to get work into schools. It used to be, oh, 15, 20 years ago, county councils would buy a show for maybe two weeks and 
put it into youth clubs and, and schools themselves. So we, we didn't have to book that tour. I don't know, Leicester's County Council would say, we really like the idea of this plane. We'll buy two weeks off you. What will it cost? And then they would tell you where to go each day. That stopped, you know, as government government involvement in, in local authorities reduced to, towards the arts. And that became a much harder ask. We've always found schools a little bit impenetrable as to get work in there. I think there are certain companies who work predominantly in schools, so they've got that relationship, yeah. if you like. We've done a few sessions in the school in Leeds about, um, and I never get the wording right, um, is it PSHE or PHSE? Kind of uh, pastoral element of, of, of teaching, if you like, rather than English or, or drama or mm. geography. Yeah, so we've done a few sessions which are quite powerful, but we don't do that much work in schools, but we do do work in mental clubs, sports clubs, community centres. We try wherever possible to reproduce the production values that, we, that you would see on stage mm. in a non-traditional venue so we, we bring all the lights or the sound as much set as yeah. we can get in we tend to get the sets designed in a modular way so that if there's a low ceiling we can just not put that bit on the set or if it's a narrow space we can lose bits here and there so the design uh the designer's job is kind of twofold really along with the lighting designers that you know designed for a theater so we'll open this show in a month's time at Leeds playhouse so there'll be a lighting design on the set for that but we'll probably have to lose some bits in smaller venues or um, in working men's clubs, for instance. Or if we've got cut the thing upstairs, you know, then we might not be bringing it all up, you know. So, but wherever possible, it's the same cast. It's obviously the same writing. We try and recreate the experience so that um, the idea being that we're trying to reduce risk for a customer. Um, and that risk could be just not liking going to the theatre, not liking the not knowing the etiquette, if you like, of going to the theatre, not wanting to come in city centre and leaving at 10.30 at night, Um, money, that's a big thing. It's not necessarily cheap to go to the theatre. We played a gig on Sunday night in a community centre just outside Wakefield. It was a fiver ticket. Everyone knew everyone in the venue. We had 70 people there, which was great. You know, whether, would we have got that in the theatre? Maybe not, but people walked there. So, you know, there's a little bit of, saving the planet in terms of that show's finished by 8 30 so we could get home in good time so there is a number of spin-offs positive spin-offs to doing that taking work into those kind of environments mm. the major one is that probably you know 50 or 60 percent of people wouldn't go to the theater anyway so um it's exposing some high quality theater to audiences that might not either think it would be for them or just wouldn't enjoy the environment going to quite a formal, rigid structure that a theatre can be. Mm. So we also have a show running at the moment in Liverpool, at the Royal Court in Liverpool, which is the size of the Grand Theatre in Leeds. So, mm. so we'll take a, a, a show to you know, a, a community centre and then play to 1,100 people on, in Liverpool. So we, I quite like that about us. We're a bit comedian-esque in that you know, we'll reflect our environments. Um, if we need to play big, we can. It needs to play on a micro level it can do without compromising quality that's the aim i'm thinking in in terms of your revenue generation how often do you need to put on a big show that maybe will make a big profit or how do you get to a point of you know do you have shows where you've got a financial model of say a one man or one woman show that sets up in theaters and you're like you know we need 30 people each night for this and we need to run it for x many nights 
is it just you do what you feel as you feel and you try to make the best of each one or is it like you know how much of a plan is there to it i'd probably say it's a little bit of all of that to be, to yeah. be honest with you um in terms of budgeting um the big show in liverpool is a cast of eight band of three um we've got a co-producer which is the royal court in liverpool they are taking the majority of the risk financial risk for that we are core funded by the arts council so mm. we can tour at a loss so our if you like our guarantee for the show in liverpool is is what we would what we would normally incur as a deficit on a show mm. yeah and we're funded for four years currently and we're coming up to the well we're, we're now in the last year of that four years but because of the mm. pandemic there's been an extension year added we're not guaranteed to get that extension year we've applied for it we should find yep. out um, in a couple of months but that does allow huge amounts of surety in trying to even out the peaks and troughs of you know the vagaries of trying to draw audiences in it also allows us to be more risk-taking in product so it doesn't have to be shakespeare or a classic it can be new writing which is notoriously difficult to draw audiences there isn't that much of robbing peter to pay paul but the damned united when we did it at the playhouse originally we, we, we've lost our core funding and we were given the rights to the play by the play uh, by the author david peace who wrote the original book and that went quite a long way to not necessarily saving the company but giving us a financial hump to go on for at least another couple of years and we were then fortunate to reapply to get into the core funded gang if you like the arts council so that kind of that production along with a few other bits of fundraising got us through that three-year hiatus if you like um mm. but by and large the scale of the show you just lose less when there's less people in it that's basically it um the non-traditional touring we did get a grant to do that that grant is now finished we are trying to continue it as best we can but that i mean as you can probably you know even even a one-man show at a five or a ticket with 30 or 40 people doesn't yeah really scratch the surface so no. you know without subsidy the, ma the majority of regional theatre wouldn't exist mm. you'd have shows at the grand theatre which is number one touring commercial commercial work but the playhouse wouldn't exist carriage works wouldn't exist city varieties would struggle so unlike america where it's all philanthropic giving that keeps theatre going in this country is you know central government that, that supports this so the equation is obviously try and maximize income obviously try and keep expenditure within the bounds of the budget which is we usually do i have to say the variable is the income but on the non-traditional touring stuff the income is relatively low so whether it's 30 people or 40 people it's much a better evening if there's 40 people financially it doesn't make huge amounts of difference mm. but i think some of the most profound shows we've done have been in non-traditional spaces you know some of the reactions we quite often do a post show Q&A, post chat with either the cast or the writer, uh, whoever's around. And some of that reaction is really heartwarming and, and you realise the power of some of the work when people can respond to it on a personal basis. So the subsidy probably allows us a deficit of about 30,000 a show. Mm. So each show will cost around about 60,000, I would say, of which we'll get 30,000 back in box office or fees or other income generation and 30,000. If we get more than that, then, then that's great. We, we have less of a deficit on that show, so it might add a little bit to reserves, which we can use the following year. 
for maybe an extra cast member or an extra longer run of something or taking work into a non-traditional space. So if we can save some money, we will, but it will always go back on the stage. You know, we have some reserves and we have reserve levels that we try and maintain for rainy day, but it's it's relatively small. What I wanted to ask you as you were speaking about that, I'm thinking, so what what do you actually think in terms of theatre going? Like, are we a theatre going nation or not a theatre going nation? Are we people that, you know, think we're not theatre going, but then we watch theatre and we enjoy it? Or like, what do you what do you make of all of this? I think what is quite interesting at the moment and the surveys that I've seen and the hearsay from venues is that audiences are slow to return. And I think because in this country, by and large, it is the reserve of the middle class, by and large, and this is a generalisation of the older generation, and obviously the nature of this pandemic, you know, the older older age group are more at risk. Um, And theatre has a job to do to replace that audience or or augment it, if you like, rather than replace it. I think by taking work into non-traditional spaces, that equation goes out the window. So I think we we attract people who who wouldn't normally go, but will for a five will risk it a couple of pints, you know. And I think we've definitely made some converts along the way. Whether we've made converts that then would go to the theatre, I'm not sure. But we've certainly had converts who come back into yours in their space again and not have. And, and look forward to it rather than have trepidation that this is going to be either too worthy, too wordy, too mm. highbrow, uh, just irrelevant, not entertaining. And um, I think we've broken down quite a lot of those myths. I think generally, I think it's a small percentage of the public that would consider themselves to be theatre going. We did a, we took a family show into a working men's club the other week, and it wasn't a huge audience, but. Um, it was middle of the afternoon on Friday, maybe two o'clock on a Friday. So predominantly the audience was kids, obviously. It was, um, it was in the summer holidays and mums. And <laughs> the mums basically put the kids in the middle and sat on the side and talked all the way through it. And it was very much a sense that they'd put the kids in front of the telly. And it was fascinating. I mean, the actors had to really work hard, harder than they would have done normally, because that's what they wanted to do. You know, the audience kind of dictates should be able to take a bit of the etiquette rather than i mean if i'd have gone over and asked them to stop talking but that conversation could have gone on some time that conversation could be far more disruptive to everyone um, than just letting this i mean it's it's constant Uh, it was but it was very much as if it was the telly you know so the kids loved it and um you know you kind of think and, and we do work with actors who now, it can be a tough gig sometimes because they are working in front of a non-theatre audience as well as in a non-traditional um, mm. environment. I, I would be amazed if 10% of the population thought themselves as theatre going. And that 10% would probably include opera and ballet and what we would call the high arts. It's interesting if you go to Eastern Europe, for instance, things like opera and ballet and classical music is, are not deemed anywhere near as intellectually challenging as they appear to be in this country they're far more you know uh, part and parcel of everyday life you know i think mm-hmm. they're far more integrated into you know school and therefore you know the nation's psyche and it's affordable by and large whereas i'm not sure theatre is really affordable for many people in this country if it's if, it, if they're not sure it's something they want to do you know if 
being told where to sit and not eat crisps and not play on your phone, that doesn't work for you. Then the theatre's it's not the right environment, you know. And and the people who do go to that environment would, would find it frustrating if you were. When we when we took the Damned United to the playhouse the first time, the play was just about an hour and ten minutes, I think. And there's a bit in the play where Brian Clough. I don't know if you know the Damned United story at all, but it's basically the, the, the story of Brian Clough and his 44 days, mm. infamous days at Leeds. And um, after about 45 minutes in the play, Brian Clough takes a phone call from his brother to tell him that his mum's died. And it was as if half time had come because loads of blokes would get up and leave the theatre to go to the toilet and then come back with more beer. And it was as if it was, oh, this is... This is like an emotional bit. It's not for me. Um, I'm not, you know, I can't, I'm not interested in buying clubs, being sad because his mum's died. I'm off for a pint. And the um, the staff were kind of a little bit, the front house staff were really quite anxious about this because this was, this is in the courtyard section of Lee's Playhouse and mm. done it up now. But the gangways used to rattle and make so much mm. like up and down because you could retract them, but it's quite old by then. So that it was just it just made me smile that, that that this was part and parcel of putting this play on at the playhouse was to bring in a new audience, to bring in, you know, a non-theatre audience. But the non-theatre audience had different ways of relating to it, you know, and that it was a bit of a clash of culture to start with. It's it almost as if the halftime whistle had blown, you know, 15 blokes to stand up and push past people to get to the toilet and then come back with more beer, spilling it on the way. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that made me smile. Um, I think the job of the playhouse was to try and programme work that that audience might like to come back and see, mm-hmm. which isn't always easy. So, uh, yeah, I we, we we like to think that that anyone would come and join or get on with one of our plays. We might be misguided in that, but I think we're less misguided with that than a lot of theatre companies and a lot of theatres. Mm. How close would you say your stuff is to, you know, like if you're trying to communicate to a mass audience or a working class audience or like, you know, hard to reach people, how much of it is leaning towards musical or has any relation towards musical? Well, we did a show nine years ago now called Big Society. And um, the title came from David Cameron, who was prime minister at the Mm. time, trying to invigorate the great British population to be more communal and basically save his government loads of money by doing stuff that he should pay for, for doing it for mm. free. There was this kind of neighbourhood watch, curtain-switching outlook to it. Boff Warley wrote it. Boff was in the, one of the founding members of Chumbawamba and it's turned into a very clever and successful playwright. So we, we did this musical show called Big Society and it had Phil Jupiter's in, who was, never mind the Buzzcocks, he was the music hall venue owner who was a baddie who wanted to close it down because the banks were full storing them and we just got an amazing audience for that it was at the city varieties with not long it was the first show in after their pantomime after their refurb and um so it was set backstage in the city varieties so while we had a number of weird turns in it there was the bird woman of berlin there was the wardrobe of mystery which was one of those wardrobes with a false back that people disappeared through what else did we have um, <laughs> We had Marcel, the Invisible Monkey. It was just brilliant. It was just so much fun. I mean, there was some politics in there because it was, you know, the actors were worried about losing their jobs. And I think then, yeah, there was, yeah, what was it? Oh, there was The Man from the Double Standard, which was a local newspaper, obviously. (laughs) Complete Shark and Reptiles, I think they used to be known. 
and it was it was poking fun at lots of different things and that went down really well we had we had some traditional theater goes we had some the band Trimble Bumba were in it as well which helped so we drew quite a music audience as well which went down well at the city drives as they do a lot of music there tends to be quite expensive though touring music a you've got pa you've got instruments you probably need a band um so our bigger shows have become a bit more musical over time the smaller shows tend not to be musical or have music in but i think what they will have that people can latch onto is a message that that's relatable i suppose it's a human message so it wouldn't be sci-fi it wouldn't be russian um it wouldn't be it would be something that, that yeah, most people could get a handle on and it would probably be it, it would be it, it would be about relationships with friends and relationships with not boy and girl it's not we don't really tend to do that stuff but it would be relationships it would be a family for instance or it would be it would be you would recognize situations you could either be in it you know oh that reminds me of so and so or you know I don't want to be i don't want to be in that situation yeah. so i think it's very relatable but it wouldn't be downton abbey you know it wouldn't be you know something mm. that you would overlap rather than and um, be a part of so i think it's real i suppose um the damage united being football based you know and people certainly in leeds um would know the story who actually would know that story very well one thing we haven't really figured out when we, we then when we only did the playoffs we then went to derby theater and Brian Clubs absolutely loved by Derby because um, he, I mean, he did miracles with them. And um, the actor playing Brian Club was used to getting booed and heckled in Leeds. And you know, yeah. people would turn up in their lead shirts at these playoffs. It's great. And and <laughs> boo at this and just shout at him, um, <laughs> and, which is hilarious. Um, it was, I mean, but but then there was this kind of televisual relationship. You know where where actors that are in soaps, for instance, get harangued in the street. If they, you know, yeah, yeah. They've done something naughty on Emmerdale. You know, they'll get lambasted by you know someone with a brolly in the centre of Leeds. There, there is that embodiment of the reality, which is. And then we went to Derby, and I don't, I don't know why we didn't twig this, but the actor just was really taken aback when he walked on stage and it was cheered. You know, he'd, he'd had four weeks, five weeks of getting dogs abuse from an audience. And then the next night, it felt like he was a hero. I got he reveled in it for that for that two weeks. I know. But, but yeah, it was a kind of it, from that point of view, it was a little bit musical. It was a bit, you know, he's mm. the baddie. Um, the play we've got in Liverpool at the moment, there's a man from the council <laughs> who just gets food every time he comes on. So he is the pantomime villain, mm. and he's not. I suppose he is set up a bit like that. Um, but yeah, I think you side with people in the plays. I think you know they're, they're, you know you can you can you can see where people have come from. You can see where you know there's hope where people want to go to. So I think that 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 rather than the musical, I think it's that relationship with the story that people can latch onto. Mm. I mean, obviously, you know, musical is a mass you know mass popular medium and mass sort of entertainment for working class people and so on and but a lot and a lot of that history goes into tv and tv shows and so on and then it, it's kind of as if theater is not allowed to have access to that heritage sometimes I, yeah. I mean i wanted to ask you about being a radical theater company as well and also just that what do you think of this that like i I kind of have the impression that theatre is one of the few areas where you really can be free. I mean, we're supposed to have all this digital freedom, but there's a lot of like cooling effect of doing something online. Um, 
Like, whereas theatre still, you know, I mean, it's quite, it's quite protected. It doesn't seem to be something that people want to censor or try to censor. You know, they have at points in history, but now it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, it's only theatres, you know. It seems like it has the potential to be a lot more dangerous and take a lot more risks than a lot of other mediums. I mean, what do you what do you think about any of that? Yeah, I think, I mean, prior to stand up used to be that vehicle, and and now you know, so you go back to like uh, like um, Rick Mail and Ben Elton and uh, Alexis mm. Sale were, were were pretty radical, you know, when that wave of comedy came out, and then back in the old days of you know people like um, Les Dawson and then you know the other side of the coin being um, Bernard Manning. I think you're right I think theatre has got the ability or has, has got the freedom of speech if you like to mm. you know as a vehicle for different views. As an industry it does self-police quite a lot. What it doesn't tend to produce is both sides of a story so there might be it tends to be predominantly left of centre, tends to be left left of centre politically, a lot of theatre, with messaging, it tends to be anti-establishment mm. quite often, whatever that establishment is, even though that establishment pays for quite a lot of it, um, yeah. <laughs> which always makes me smile. So I think, I think you're right, I think there is an element of freedom, but I think what you don't always get is a balanced viewpoint from theatre. But that's that's not to say you should have a balanced viewpoint. Mm. But you tend to get very little, if you like, um, opposing viewpoints on certain issues, like you know, uh, like right. You don't get much right wing theatre, for instance. You know, um, mm. and whether that would have any traction, or what I don't know. So, but I think bigger theatres have to be careful about their paymasters. I think there's there's I think there is a, a an ill an inbuilt censorship about how far. I mean, that's the beauty of having a studio space. I think you're allowed to be more radical in a smaller space. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's it's more of a more of a niche audience, possibly. That might attract what you know. When I was talking earlier about you know your archetypal theatre audience, mm. I think a more radical theatre production would draw in a more radical audience mm. um, necessarily. Yeah, I. I think there is still within theatre lots of idealism, which is which is great. A lot of hope that theatre can somehow change the world, that can reinvigorate conversations about fairness and about people without a voice. Whether that really actually holds much traction or not, I don't know. If the right people pick up on the messages and react, I, don't, I mean, I was in London when way back when when Maggie Thatcher got rid of the Great London Council. And you know, I just to this day I don't really understand how in a in a um, democracy that managed to happen. Um, and Ken Livingston was the mayor of the London Council at the time, Great London Council. And no one really batted an eye apart from the cultural movement, mainly mainly theatre and stand-up. That was it. And and we have no industrial muscle as such, you know, we weren't gonna but no one was gonna we weren't gonna, you know stop the commerce of London town by you know going picketing and stuff. So I think there's a voice there, there's a movement there, but again how much power it's got, you know, I think it's very limited. But it, I think it it can galvanize. I mean Red Ladder was formed out of the 1968 um, march against the Vietnam War. 
the red ladder was the, the hustings where the actors would stand on the you know the rungs of the ladder and, and mm. Hyde Park at Speaker's Corner and, and do theatre shows with a megaphone and things like that. So mm. you know they were born out of very um, political freedom of speech days, if you like, and, and tried to maintain that. How successful? Don't know. We're still going, so it must be you know through very varying degrees of left and right regimes. So we managed to steer a course through that. I wouldn't say we're as overtly radical as we were when we first started. I think it's more political with a small p. I wouldn't say it's banner waving. I wouldn't say it's tub thumping. But I think it's more about supporting you know, those without a voice more than party political support, if you like. Hmm. I'm trying to ask people about universal basic income now yep. because I want to promote it and I think we should all have it. And I don't really want to ask loads of people for loads of money all the time. So, yeah, I'd rather just be getting an income and be able to do what I want. So if you had a UBI, would you still be doing the theatre work? Would you keep producing? Would you would you work less? Would you work the same amount? How do you think it would change your working? I think we do work in an industry which, I, mean, I think I said this right at the beginning, it's, it's, I would say 95% of people who work in the industry do it because they really enjoy working in the industry. Mm. And it's not for the money. I mean, obviously, it depends on what that level is for a number of people. If there are, I mean, my kids are grown up now, so I've got less less need to financially plan in that respect. But I think if if I was paid for less hours, for instance, I think I'd probably still do the same amount of work. I just do. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm, I am so lucky that I think, you know, there's only been one year of my working life that I've not really not wanting to get out of bed which mm. is amazing really and that's such a privilege that i've mm. had to work in, in an environment that is very supportive is very thrilling is very challenging but in a not in a competitive way you know it's, it's a very positive challenge if you like i probably would just do the same i probably would mm. do i can't think of oh, i could do some jigsaws i suppose crosswords <laughs> Um, do a bit more reading oh, get your watch yeah. list ticked off yeah I could, I could do a bit of that um I, yeah i would still i mean it, it, it would be voluntary you know I, yeah i would I, i'm not i don't know I, I think it'd be rubbish if i retired I, think, I used to think my dad would be rubbish when he retired and he was really busy so maybe i'd, I'd be okay i yeah that i you know going back to the very first conversation to, you know i i'm so fortunate that to enjoy my work that i would do it for free but if I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't, mm. because that to me would be, I would be being exploited. I, I, I never feel exploited, even though, I'm, you know, I suppose I could work in a different industry with, and get, you know, more money. I suppose because everyone's exploited, it's kind of okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel any more or less exploited than, you know, the person next to me in the industry, you know. So there is a kind of camaraderie about that. I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but yeah, I would, I, I, I would absolutely carry on doing what I do for nothing if, if there is a way to make you know mm. I mean I, I think that's the most difficult question to answer because it's hard to imagine of just like oh you mean I don't have to do anything oh, yeah. all right then <laughs> well how do I actually feel about that you know like sometimes you can have the reaction you have to do stuff you're like no I'm not going to do stuff I don't want to do stuff but you know you you don't have to do stuff it's like well oh maybe I do want to do stuff then yeah. Well, the furlough experiment, you know, for want of a better expression, the furlough, which is now finished, doesn't it? Mm, yeah. Um, 
I mean, I thought, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Schoolman at all, and I'm not a huge fan of, you know, quite a lot of what they've done during this, but I thought the Pharaoh scheme has been unbelievably good. And mm. um, from, you know, an ethical point of view, I think they brought it in really quickly, and I mm. thought they brought it in in a very fair way. Of course, they could, it could be fair, but they had to do it pretty quick. Mm. Uh, from a business point of view, but, um, I, I never understood why on March the 17th, Boris didn't put a, pound, a penny on income tax. I'd have done that straight away. So anyone still in work, no, I don't know anyone who would have had any qualms about that and mm. just said, like, we are future-proofing Britain. This could last for a week or it could last for a year. No one knows. Go, you know, go with us on this. Stick a penny on income tax rather than the pain will come and it will come, you know, like talk, talking about taking £20 off. Universal mm. It's just, there, there was something that Udi Hernes said, who's the chief executive of Bayern Munich, and uh, I do, a lot of my life revolves around football, but um, <laughs> he said about season ticket holders at Bayern Munich, I think the ground holds 65,000 or something. He said, we could charge another 200 euros per season ticket and we could get it. We've got a waiting list, you know, halfway around Munich. We could, we could absolutely do that. He said, that would get me two, two million quid a year. He said, what does that get Bayern Munich? He said, it gets absolutely nothing in this day and age. He said, but 200 euros for your average Municher or, or German is a load of money. Mm. And actually, you know, so the, that, that kind of ethos of, so taking £20 off people who've got, barely got £21, mm. how many £20 are they going to get? Not that much relative. Do you know what I mean? If they'd have just done oh, yeah. that, so that, that just seems, that just seems such an easy target to, to, to me. And a really bad, you know, if you've been mercenary, it's not a vote winner. I don't know many people who would agree with that. So it just feels to me that there are better ways of circulating cash than, than taxing the poor. It just feels just morally and ethically bankrupt. And I'm not even sure it makes particularly business sense either. And I think that's the thing that irks me about, you know, quite a lot of the rhetoric around um, taxation is that, you know, taking a couple more percent of people who are earning a quarter of a million, they won't even notice it, you know. You, know, mm. you hear about footballers and, you know, people who are stashing cash away through tax avoidance schemes you kind of think how much money does anyone actually need you know what what you know what after a certain amount of money surely it becomes irrelevant maybe it doesn't i don't know maybe i've got one weird about money but um Mr. well it, it's being able to pay for what you need to be able to pay for isn't it that's the that's the thing that's what you always need to sort of keep in mind but but the word need one is very different isn't it so mm -hmm. That you know, and people's definition of need is is subjective. But I mean, yeah, mm. yeah. I just kind of think support, you know, things like the NHS, things like you know, um, well, the welfare state is just unbelievably good. And you know, it should we should be so proud of it, not tear it to pieces. Could be run better. You know, I I, st I still fail to see why the trains are better when there's ten different companies running them than one. Um, mm. I just don't understand how that can be a thing, but it is. But if, why don't we just get someone really brilliant to run the work railways for the country, for instance? You know, they must be they must be out there. But yeah. Yeah. So you know, my relationship with I mean, I'm fortunate that I have a job. I'm fortunate that, you know, I'm as far as I'm aware, I'm not going to put out to the grass anytime soon. But I would do it. 
from don't tell don't tell my board this but um I would do <laughs> well i mean there's a difference between would do it for money and can do it for, you know would do it for no money and can do it for no money yeah. the the thing is you you would do but you can't yeah basically <laughs> my kids, that decision I know. yeah you know, my bank manager wouldn't like that apart from anything else. And plus I need to eat, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I won't like I won't I won't go into a, a period of agreeing with you on on everything that you've said there, um, which I could easily do, but then that's just gonna derail <laughs> where we're going with the rest of the conversation. Let's talk about Brexit then. <laughs> how how is Brexit gonna affect you? Do you have any idea? Is it had it happened? Has it had any effect? I mean, we, as a business, we tend to take a show to Belfast in 15 years, and that's as, the only time we've crossed, ever crossed water to take a show anywhere. So from a business perspective, so for ease, kind of ease of transit, if you like, in terms of, in terms of visas and currency and ease of, that makes no difference to us. We don't tour internationally. We don't. We just mm. tour within these, these islands. So we tend to, wherever possible, cast from within Yorkshire. There's a number of reasons. A, it gives local actors a job. B, it's way cheaper. We don't have to pay for travel and accommodation things like that. Same with our creatives. So losing rafts of workforce hasn't really impacted on us. So from a purely professional point of view, Brexit has had little or no impact. I do know that things who do tour and it's becoming a real coupled with the pandemic you know mm. the uncertainty around all of that means that their output is, is virtually nil at the moment because mm. they have to get a visa for every country they go to separately then you know transit through europe is virtually impossible or so yeah. arduous and so expensive and so whimsical as to whether you get visas or you don't i i, I, I do smile when I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the Tories took us into Europe and you know, the, you know, the backlash from the left was seismic, but it made no difference. We still went into Europe. Ted Egan and Mary Gang were going <coughs> And, you know, what feels like blink an eye political, blink an eye later, it's the Tories that take us out of Europe. And I, I, I don't know, it, it, just, it, just sound, it just felt like a, a really ridiculous kind of pissing up the wall contest by Danny Cameron. Um, that, that he lost so badly and the impact. And I, I have to say that on both sides of the campaign, there was very few truths, I think, coming out as to what the real impact was going to be. And sure, a lot of that was because we didn't know what the real impacts were going to be, but things like you know, borders between Northern and, and, and the Republic of Ireland, leadingly obvious, were going to be problematical. Um, yeah. Import export was going to be problematical. And all the things that being in Europe made easy we're going to become difficult with the brexit thing has it generated any work have you got any pieces that have come out of it like has it you know has it produced anything artistic well i suppose our show about wrestling was probably some of the some of the narrative that was probably heightened by brexit heightened by the polarization uh, that vote brought about in terms of people's perception of immigrants and asylum seekers and refugees um, and what they were allowed to say about any of that as well yeah and also what the kind of mis 
missed knowledge about what a refugee is and what an asylum seeker is and what they can and what they can't do and what their privileges and inverted commas are in this country, you know. So so it was a bit of an expose of that. But I think I think mm. Brexit just highlighted that rather than and it wasn't the driving force behind the creation of the piece, if you like. But I think I think some of the issues in it were certainly certainly expanded by um by that vote. And it felt a more immediate piece because of because of the vote, I guess. But uh, but it's a you know we could release it now. We could release it ten years ago. Some of those same tropes in the same. And can we move away from Brexit? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So I was gonna. I, I I will try and bring it back to something happier. But I've got one last sort of heavy question. Okay. So which is climate. Um, so and sustainability, and obviously, like with theatre, theatre is like an industry that you know high level of consumables. Like you said yourself, you, you know, you used to kind of skip most of the flats. You know, storing them. What can you do, or what have you been thinking about, or do you have any opportunity at all, or any ability or resources to think about any of that? Like. How much greening can you do? And is it something that you can spend time on, you know, thinking of new ideas in that direction? Well, it's very, very much to the fore of the industry's thinking. Um, it's very much to the fore of the Arts Council's thinking. I think a lot of what's happened in the industry recently is has had a positive impact, but it's come about because it's saved money. Mm. So things like most theatre lighting now is MD, so it draws yeah. far less power. You know, it's far more flexible as a as a you know you get two hundred fifty six thousand colours or whatever, um, as opposed to a bit of gel in front of a white light. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's you know in terms of design, in terms of you know it's so much more flexible and user friendly, but also it's you know one light can do the job of ten, um, mm. and one light takes you know a fraction of the power. So that that has come about. Um, and weight as well, I guess, you know, like for transporting yeah. it, it'll be super light and yeah. Yeah, and they last forever, you know, and so, you know, you're not replacing them. Theatre lamps are, you know, 20 quid or whatever. So, you know, one of those gets knocked or, you know, that's, you know, money down the drain. So, so that has had a big impact on touring and also building based um, lighting. So I think things, you know, come along that are economically sustainable. We are the day after tomorrow as a company um, engaging with sustainable arts in Leeds. We're doing some carbon literacy training on Thursday. So there's a couple of staff members and some board members and a couple of other theatre companies looking at. So this morning before I came on, I've just spent three hours looking at the, the impact we are as humans having on the planet and far worse than Brexit. But as an industry, we're not very green. As an industry, we're not very sustainable. So yes, we are thinking about it. Yes, we are doing this training on Thursday. I would love to be able to say here and now that it will have a huge impact on our footprint. It's just hard to visualise how we can take work. We can either ask loads of people to come to one place, mm. i.e. a big theatre, mm. or we can take work to lots of little places where people might be able to walk or get the bus to. Mm. Another problem with, with you know, theatre and meat is if it finishes at half 10, my last bus back to us, it's 10 o'clock. Yeah. 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 You know, I can't get home. So do I drive 
or do I don't go to the theatre? You know, so I think there are things that the theatre could do. They, you know, surely Monday and Tuesday you could start at six o'clock, for instance, and maybe mm. the week a bit later. And I think there is some out, outmoded thinking that, that could be gone into. We have a really old battered band, and of course it has to go through some MT, of course it has to have its emissions tested. So I guess it's kind of okay. But I look at it and I think, well, I look it should at be it. on the road. Well, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be on the road. But then I, I look at it and I think, well, it is still on the road. It's S-Rage from first time around. It hasn't been skipped. So it hasn't, you know, it hasn't been yeah. thrown away or, you know. Yeah, in terms of its usability, it's been well used and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, been maximised. Yeah, so you can look at it that way. And it's, uh, but I just, well, I, I'm not being defeated about this because I think that there's a, a lot of little gains definitely worth thinking about. We so there there is a thought in my head to gather half a dozen theatre companies in and around me and we put in and buy an electric vehicle that we can tour in. Trouble is, A, we all take the tour at the same time, autumn and spring. Mm. Um, B, you know, reach on vans, for instance, electric vans isn't great at the moment. I mean it will get better for sure, but mm. we don't want to be stopping every 20 minutes to recharge or panic about. You know, I don't know, doing a get out at 11 o'clock at night in Deptford or something in London thinking mm. oh, I've got about four miles left, you know, where's... So the, I, I think there's, it, it's, what do they call it? Charge conflict or charge panic, you know, the kind of stress that not being able to top the car. Right. Yeah. So that I do, I do think about, I think as a company, I mean, doing this training, do you know about sale, sale arts in Leeds? I don't yeah, 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 I've heard of it. Um, so I'm, I don't know what will come out of that. I've heard, you know, it's quite profound. Certainly the, the reading and the, the source materials were eye-opening. And I don't think I've ever, ever met a, you know, a climate sceptic, but I, I, I do fail to see how anyone could be sceptical about the fact that we are wrecking the planet. But I'd be interested to sit down and chat with someone and, and, and hear what, why they think we aren't and what body of evidence. I think the main reason is the complete lack of action, you know, at, at higher levels, just the, the total lack of, like, appropriate response to the situation. And I think that, that that's why, you know, a lot of the, oh, there's this problem with the world and this problem with the world and, like, why can't, why can't people be like this and how can they get away with this? And it's like, we've got this huge existential crisis hanging over us and everyone who thinks that they're anybody is doing absolutely nothing about it and and we're all supposed to be like you know it's the house on fire thing it's it's like the house is literally on fire are are we going to react to this are we just going to keep having a party here or what's what's going on like Mm -hmm. that I, i think that has a tremendous effect i think it has a tremendous effect over everything you know yeah i mean so i i I mean, I, I suppose having watched a lot and read quite a lot this morning, which tops up kind of thoughts and beliefs that I had anyway, it is such a huge problem that, that huge measures need to, need to be taken. If we, as a small touring data company, can help to minimise that, that would be amazing. Whether we can, either by the way we work, help that, or by other methodologies, for instance, 
looking at our carbon footprint and trying to offset it somehow. The other element is that we are funded by the Arts Council to be a national touring theatre company. Mm -hmm. No one ever really defines what a tour is. Well, three performances in different locations is deemed to be a tour. Um, mm. But actually, as a national, if we just did three gigs a year, questions might get asked in the house about how we really <laughs> yeah. and, and our likelihood of continued funding would be reduced. So I think the Arts Council have got a difficult job in, in evaluating you know, the touring model, which is not really doing the planet any favours at all. Or if we tour hyper-locally, I probably need to do some number crunching to say to the Arts Council, well, if we do 10 performances in these 10 venues where people walk and get the bus, it's actually way, way better than one performance in a venue of a thousand people where everyone drives in and you know the infrastructure needed to keep that building going. I, I don't know if I've got the brain power to do that or whether that's you know a waste of my time. But oh, I, th I think to yeah. some degree that is kind of a waste of your time because, you know, that that's a data crunching exercise. It's a big number crunching exercise. I mean, like, what do you think of the idea that, you know, from, from being green, from a sustainability perspective, a lot of that is about what you're kind of doing already. You know, you're trying to build community and reach out to people. You're trying to bring people into theatre. And you also have the opportunity to work with new writers who can work in an area of, how we deal with this, how we live in this new world, this changed world. Like you can produce climate-based content that, you know, deals with pe people, how they are dealing with it and, you know, potentially how to deal with it in the future, that kind of thing. I mean, does that, I mean, is that something that's kind of out of sight as being a sustainable side of things or is that something that you could see as an avenue that's, that's valuable in itself? I mean, the play we've got in Liverpool is about a community who um, exists in the shadow of Liverpool football ground and they have taken over or they're seeking planning permission to take over a street of up for demolished demolition houses and the, at the apex of this terrace is a bakery which was like you know been in in Anfield for decades and it's kind of a symbol of the community and what they what are they doing with this terrace of houses is turning they've managed to get planning permission they're going to turn it into affordable housing, but also completely neutral housing in terms of carbon uh, emissions. So there will be solar panels, there'll be um, heat pumps, all this kind of thing. Um, so there is a, quite a, there's a section in the play that talks about what this terrace is going to be and how it's going to be of the people and for the people, but also, you know, looking at further impacts on, on the climate. So that, and that gets around the applause, which is great, you know. So, so I think within the work there is the opportunity to certainly sow some seeds of conversation and, and interest in the issues. Um, we did do a play years ago called Ugly, which was a, an immense piece of work. It was very dark, um, and water was scarce, so you weren't allowed to cry. For instance, that was a, that was a, that was. A, a, um, the state did not allow you to cry. You weren't allowed to ejaculate. That was a waste of fluid. There was so little water left on the planet that any, mm. and so it was a very extreme play. It took it to the nth degree, but you know, mm. we're perhaps not that far away from it now. Um, mm. A hard watch, but actually a theatre going audience weren't that keen on it, but a, a younger student title or teen to early 20 audience really, really thought it was profound. And in the end, there was a, a 
the the heroine was I can't remember her name now, Mrs. Simon or other. She used to be a home economics teacher. There's two worlds. There was this the, the state where the super specials lived, and then there was the where everyone else lived, which was kind of mm. like the Hades, really. But that's where all the fun was. But that's where all the people were put who were not going to be saved to come the revolution, as it were. Mm. Yeah, it was a it was a very clever piece of writing, but a very difficult. But not many theatres booked it. It wasn't mm. a great tour. You know, there was a kind of going back to the conversation about theatre can be mm. you know, a vocal or mouthpiece for issues. It was very. It wasn't really billed as a show about sustainability and climate change, but it definitely was. But yeah, a lot of theatres shied away from it. We can only really play either in venues we create ourselves, like recommends clubs, mm. or when we get booked. You know, and if venues feel that a piece of work is too radical or too, or going to be not who their audience would come and see, you know, we are at the behest of the gatekeepers, which is a shame a lot of the time in terms of spreading mm. wider messaging. But it's certainly on our thought, we've, you know, we, we, we certainly have a couple of board members now who are very active. We've got a, quite a new tranche of board members, very active in looking at ways to, you know, try and combat how we do things and why we do things. And, and there's been certain things that, I mean, I'm quite intrigued to know with the pandemic, obviously that, that there's some really obvious benefits to people working from home. Mm -hmm. um, some obvious benefits of me not coming to your office to do this, for instance. And mm -hmm. um, I'm also quite interested to know things like public transport, where I've got a real kicking. And, you know, the amount, I mean, I don't think public transport moves is brilliant. As I say, it's 10 o'clock, my last bus home. You know, night buses, I don't think, is there, I don't know. Um, but public transport, you know, it's, that's all been set back, you know, probably a decade in trying to get people onto public transport. Mm -hmm. That feels such a shame. You know, I, I took a test this morning and you just look at the packaging that that generates, that one mm -hmm. test. Mm -hmm. But that is now seen as, you know, you have to do that. that so well, it's not just see, the packaging either, is it's the shipping, isn't it? Because, you know, most yeah. of them are still coming from China or whatever, aren't they? So it's like, you know, they're all piled on a big boat and shipped across the world. So I, it, I kind of, I, you know, on the one hand, you know, obviously the pandemic has, has, has taken a huge toll on life huge huge toll on you know kind of mentality in terms of people being isolated and stuck at home not i i you know people need human interaction most people um and then there's kind of yeah the spin-offs of you know the wastage and the and but but we have to do it or else we're not allowed to exist things like the testing which is and, and you know and all that embodies and you know posting packages backwards and forwards and you know all the yeah uh, so Yes, of course, I think less traffic's good. But there has been some downsides to that as well. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the overall impact will be. Probably beneficial, but it's not going to be as obvious, I think, as some people think. Mm. I wanted to do, like, a variation on, a, like, if you could change three things at work, what would they be? But I want to kind of go into, I want to try and finish on a more positive note. So I want to kind of look at something that you can get excited about in terms of your work. Yep. Um, I mean, obviously you've been doing it for a while. You enjoy it. You've stayed in this field the whole time. You know, you've, you've got a lot of experience in the field. Do you see yourself ever moving out of this or is this you? I can't see me doing anything else. I'm, I'm, I'm 60 in a couple of months time. So the thought of a career change, if anyone would have me, what would I do? Cricket correspondent, maybe? Sports journalist, maybe, I don't know. 
I don't know. I think it'll be me, to be honest. I think it'll be me. And probably Red Ladder, I think, now. So what would you want, like, so say say you've got to your retirement, you've done everything you wanted to do with Red Ladder, you, you're finishing off happy, it's all, it's all good. The world's still here, it's still working, it's still crazy. And, you know, you, someone else is coming in, like, what, what would you want them to do? Would you want them to sort of take everything in a completely new direction or would you want them to kind of, do you feel like it'd be a tradition that they'd need to carry on? Like, is it a legacy of work? What, what would you sort of want from the next person? I think the thing that exercises me a lot about us, because we're a very small company with quite a small output, is the stories that we tell with any conviction are stories that we can absolutely stand behind, yeah. which actually excludes quite a lot of stories, really, because my you know, white middle class privileged, that's my life experience. I think, I think maybe the model of full-time employees in the arts is maybe slightly flawed. So I think my role should probably be spliced up a bit. Mm. So while I'm doing my role, what I would really, really like is to have more full-time staff. Mm. If I have five or six freelancers who do a couple of days a week here for us and then three days a week on either their own projects or for someone else, um, trying to get everyone together, even on Zoom calls like herding cats, and that does my editing. I would like more control over that. But we're not a particularly rich company. There isn't enough work for all these guys to do full-time with us. Mm. Um, so that, that would be, if I could improve something, that, that would be that I could say to everyone, I could pay. I, they wouldn't have to do more than two days' work, but mm. if I could pay them enough not to work for anyone else, so that I don't, yeah. I don't need to get my back and call, but trying to get consensus is really difficult. So a bit more access to our freelance would be amazing. So this next comment is a bit counterintuitive because actually I think maybe my role and the artistic director's role, maybe they could be split up so that there is more lived experience within the company to do mm. maybe a broader selection of work that, that mm. um, has more resonance, if you like. So I think, yeah, I, I, I do weight things in a in particular way. I'm quite obsessive about saying things I and mean, it's very much a kind of look after the pennies the pounds to look after themselves mm. i think someone with a bit more flamboyance could do very different things with the company we kept going we kept going when we weren't core funded and a lot of that is to do with looking after the pennies but you know but yeah maybe breaking up the role a bit so that there's more voices if you like yeah in, in that creative team without that that kind of i suppose you know in business plan, senior management team, you know, so that there was maybe four people doing two the two jobs, so that there was people mm. in and maybe don't know. Mm. That might just dilute everything. You know, it's hard to tell. It very much depends on the personalities, I guess. But that that would be something that, you know, if and when I leave, you know, if they if that happened and 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 it worked, I think that could be really good. Mm. I think that's a really excellent answer. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> just. Well, just the, the sort of, yeah, I, I mean, like you say, it's counterintuitive to kind of go, yeah, my job should probably not quite exist this way and be kind of broken up. I know we've been going for a while, but I want to keep you just a little bit longer to kind of, um, I want to cover your process with the writers. 
So how you how do you how do you source the writers? Do people just have a play written and they write to you, or you do lots of workshops and you start working with people who've got ideas? Does it just is every time different? What what happens? I'm really hating when people ask this question because okay. Sorry. I, feel, I feel massively guilty that I can't tell you what the process is. So yeah. not that long ago, it was probably six months, we um so myself and the artistic director Rod and a relatively newcomer to our team, Alice, spent a day, and I don't think I've been in the same room as those two for a year. So A, that was nice, but B, we, we went back to 2012, we looked at all the productions we've been involved in as a, as a company big bit of paper on the wall and what was the show how did it come about who was it for who was in it who came to see it you know it was just a kind of let's have a look at all these shows for the last 10 years nine years and try and see what the methodology was mm. and there was absolutely no rhyme or reason to it it was <laughs> it's actually probably one of the reasons that keeps this job so alive for me is that quite often it would be either serendipitous or a gut feeling or someone would like to work with. So a, a script has landed on our desk and we've read it and we thought, fuck, that was amazing. That is right. That is that feels so right for us. Mm. That probably that probably happens one in every eight plays, I would say, that we produce. So we could say, send in the script, we'll read it, we might, you know, chances are we won't. So I, I, I'm loath to say that to anyone. We've probably worked with a writer who we've wanted to work with, that the timelines have meshed, that the project has meshed probably one in 10. So that's quite rare. It will be sometimes, so we've done a couple of adaptations of books. One was Damage United, one was a play called Promised Land, which was a, yeah. written by um, Leeds, Journalist used to work for the Sunday Mirror, Anthony Clavone. Um, mm. And Anthony is just the best self publicist I've ever met. Um, mm. which, he works for the media, so why wouldn't he be? But um, he's quite pushy, but actually, he was right to be pushy because this was a great project. And it was a story about um, the kind of looking at Jewish migration into Leeds in, in the pogroms in the early 19th century. And then I know this was a bit of a conceit by Anthony, but that, that the success of the football team mirrored the success, or the success of the city mirrored the success of the football team, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so there was, you know, um, it was very interesting about, you know, how a lot of Leeds business was founded on, you know, Jewish immigration, like the, you know, the whole tailoring industry within Leeds and then moving out of the lowlands, and 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 you know, and quite how Anthony managed to weave in Leeds and I, I don't know, but. Um, <laughs> and there was elements of, like where, I mean back in the 70s it was a really horrible club to support because it was dangerous going away from home but actually it was really racist you know it was a really racist club so and that was a kind of intertwined story so that I mean I think I'd met Anthony at one of his book launches and we started talking the play we we're going to do about the black 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 experience in England Rod went to a reading at a theatre in Manchester and just thought it was brilliant. So mm. again, we could do more of that. We could read more scripts. We could have more conversations for sure. We we worked with it. Uh, so Boff, who tends, we had a, the, the same. We had a big 
I told you about the away day where this conversation about the word entertainment and the same away day. Um, it became quite apparent that there are two strands of work. There was the um, quite lighthearted, quite political, uplifting work. And then there was the dark, gloomy Red Ladder. Mm. And we kind of would alternate gloomy and entertaining. Mm. So some writers are gloomy writers and some writers are, you know, like kind of mm. unashamedly entertainment-like writers. So, um, yeah, if, if we're looking to a particular subject or we probably go to our gloomy folder, if you like, if there's <laughs> that we think is a bit more piss-taking, which would probably be political in a way, because big society was immensely political. It had a mm. whole sketch where um, Phil Jupiter's had um, one of the other actors with his hand up his back and the, his bottom half was a puppet, and that was David Cameron and, and Nick Clegg, and Nick Clegg was obviously mm. David Cameron's puppet because they you know, formed mm. an alliance, but everyone knew that he was just a puppet. Who was in charge. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so we have some gloomy writers on the roster and we've worked with a couple of gloomy writers and they won't mind me saying that really but um but there is no you know i feel really saddened or that i can't say to a writer this is the process if you do this 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 and this you'll get a commission if you do this and this you know we might have a conversation what tends to happen when there's a script just opposite me i'm looking at and it's just not us. It's just not, you know, someone sent in a script that it's just, there's no research gone into why they've sent it to us because it's, you know, you would mm. look even, even what, if you looked at our three current shows on our website, you would just mm. see that. It's not, it doesn't fulfill any of that, you know. So a lot of it though is about an organic osmotic process. So the play about wrestling came about through a relationship with an artistic director who was looking to work with us and a writer of colour because we were going to put together a, a creative team, a really diverse creative team of quite early career artists as a platform for their work. Um, so that came about through a number of different strands. And was, again, it wasn't planned by us. We, we happened to be around and fit in with that. Show we did called Shed Crew a few years ago. That was a script that landed on our desk. I'd read the book, Rod had read the book, Miss Trep came unsolicited from a writer we'd heard of and it was just perfect for us um so i would love to be able to say this is the process you know follow the guidelines on the website and that will get you past us it's just not it's so hit and miss and chance chancy mm. which you know i'm sorry for any writers listening is not helpful at all i mean do you think part of that though is that the, there's no either ecosystem or organization there there's no there's no there's no route into it that you know of like how you, you how you can do that. So, for example, if you're starting up a business, then yeah. you know the first thing is like you have your business idea, you have some kind of business plan, you you register with Companies House, and then from there you kind of fall into networking or whatever. You know, like the, because the path is there and there's the infrastructure is there, the landscapes there, the cultures there for it. Do we not have all the other ones that are there in terms of like writing workshops and stuff? Like maybe they're just not good enough at, you know, creating the writers and then that material being produced. Like uh, I, I mean, like maybe there's a way to to do it so that writers can mesh with producers more easily and, and you don't have to read loads of, you know, boring rubbish scripts to find the good one, you know. 
I mean, there are schemes out and writer schemes that exist. The Playhouse run them as a company in Bradford called Freedom Studios. They do a writing uh, course. We are. But do any of those scripts go into anything from there, or are they just like, you know, because I've been on on things where someone will be like, oh yeah, I'll read your script and give you some feedback, and then it's like, well, is that it? Now what? You know, like. Do they then go into development? Does someone pick them up? Is there a pathway into anything for any of them? There will be more of a chance of a pathway than not. Yeah. Because there will be some sharings and out of that might come, you know, the seed of an idea or seed of a yeah. venue. So I think they are better to have them than not. We are in a, in a move to try and be more strategic, working with a whole company called Silent Uproar who have they're developing a number of writers for work on a larger scale. So not just studio size scale, but mid-scale work, but, but new writers. So they've done quite a lot of the legwork there. And I think there's definitely some opportunity for us to work with one of those going forward. Um, we, we produce one show a year. So the sound, I don't really like the expression, you know, we don't have the time, but we, we could be more what's the word, responsive, I suppose, to, to asking people to send stuff in. We mm. could be more receptive to these writing schemes to say, send all the writers our way, we'll, we'll have a chat. We don't, and I, I don't know why we don't, but we don't. We are, to say, working with this company called Silent Uproar to help develop some of their writers. They had a team of people of which we were a, a small part. They got a number of venues together to help read all the scripts, so it wasn't just two or three people reading them. And because the other thing about two or three people reading them all is, I know there'll be certain styles of play that I don't yeah. like. Yeah. So they, they're not going to get past me, you know. So having a pool of people is way better, or you stand a way better chance of, you know, of, of hitting the spot if you like. I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but we could be more strategic about it. We should be more strategic about it. We're not. We get, I think we're on the verge of getting better though. Mm. That helps. Yeah. So I'm not more really because it was quite illuminating having this day of, and some of it was about trying to find there's no aesthetic to the work either so mm. you can see any of the three shows on our website they're all totally totally different and um, mm. the way they look the way they sound their composition their creative teams their you know what they're trying to achieve they're all very very different shows so it's great for us keeps it alive but for programmers it's a bit of a nightmare because it's not like knee high where you know what you're going to get. Yeah. You know you get you'll get actor musos. You'll know you'll get uh, you know this take on a classic story. There'll be some singing. There'll be some dancing. There'll be some clowning. And that's not what we don't have. You can't say oh that's a red light show, which I think keeps it vital for us and, and alive. But it mm. feels every time we book a tour, it's you know it's almost like reinventing the wheel because people won't just book you on just on because you're red ladder it just doesn't happen yeah yeah okay uh so yeah i am going to start to wind it up uh i want to touch briefly on social media stuff okay uh, but also i mean sort of going back to kind of the script thing before uh oh yeah this is this is the other thing as well so the social media stuff and then that in terms of maybe content management or outreach and as a way of sourcing potential writers or collaborators or new shows or new venues and that kind of thing uh, but i also want you to speak a little bit about the ladder easters mm -hmm. and the ladder easter video and then if you can 
sort of flag anything that's upcoming that you know people should come and see and then you know your your sort of social handles and so on yeah so um oh yeah i don't know what they are i'm i'm, I'm I, I can to... i you can send me them in an email i'll put them in a link yeah. in the show notes yeah. i'm probably the most socially media unaware person in the world <laughs> so going back slightly to the conversation about right so we also work with an organization that is very local called arts at the arms and it's a relatively embryonic organization but we do put some money to help them stage showcases i think of emerging or leads based talent, not necessarily emerging but leads or certainly leads region based talent and they, they they're doing a series of three evenings one in barsley one in seacroft and one in on Kurtzell road um cardigan arms and it's the same show each, each night for three nights, but just in different location. And it could be a poetry, you know, so there'll be, I don't know, maybe eight different short excerpts. You know, some will be sketches, some will be a song, some will be poetry, some will be narration. Um, so we do support that. And, and, and if something were to come out of that process, then that again might be an avenue we'd look at. So in terms of social media, um, we do, we have a press and PR manager. I suppose because I'm the bean counter, I'm very intrigued by this word profile. And press and PR people love the word profile. It's all about your profile. And I'll say, right, okay. But it's virtually impossible to measure. And I quite like, I like, I quite like an investment on return, the return on investment. Um, just, just doing stuff for profile, I find quite a struggle. I get it, but I can't measure it. So I'm, you know, people have to work quite hard to, for me to part with any money for profile profile raising in inverted commas initiatives <laughs> but things like twitter are brilliant because it's free you know and i just think it's great and if people could be asked tweeting about us that's brilliant you know we have one of our one of the lads who does arts at the arms is also our social media officer manager officer he's quite forensic about twitter and he's quite scientific about it so i quite enjoy talking to him about the whole science of how twitter can work so there's a, you know, there's perceptions right or wrongly about what Instagram can do. There's perceptions right or wrongly about what Facebook's for and can do. Same with TikTok, which is a, you know, a weird world I've never inhabited. And Twitter, I don't, I don't do Twitter, but because I just, I'm quite addictive. So I feel I could just see my life passing away for me if I did Twitter. I just mm. never been done. But I do feel it's incredibly powerful. But we have opposing camps on what Twitter's for. And I kind of think any social media should sell tickets eventually at some point and mm. um, or be part of that mix to try and persuade someone to take a chance on coming to see us. Some of the belief is that's not what Twitter is for at all. It's about commentary, it's about social comment, it's about views and reviews. Um, and I kind of think, well, that's yeah, great. It becomes potentially echo chamber. That's you know, that's that's mm. the problem with that, I think. I, I, and maybe it's somewhere in between a combination, I guess, is, is having a, you know, so we'd split our Twitter feed into um, Red Ladder and Rod, something or other, I can't remember. So Rod, who's our director, is quite um, voluble on Twitter. He likes Twitter and gets very involved in Twitter, but would quite often tweet about things that weren't Red Ladder related. And there was a, a thought within our marketing and comms people that that wasn't quite what the Red Ladder Twitter should be. Mm. So I kind of stayed out of that conversation because I, yeah, I think 
there's this brand, this word brand, which is quite interesting and loathed by a lot of people in the arts. But it's, but actually, this will feed onto Ladderistas in a way because that is our individual mm. giving platform, and that is all about brand in a collective way. That is, you know, it's about being part of our gang. It's about having kind of lined up visions, really, and ethoses. You know, so it's about um, very much about brand, but we wouldn't call it that. So you know, mm. it's all about you know we're stronger together and you know and if you can help us you know with some cash then we can give work to actors we can offset our you know help offset our carbon footprint we can tell stories at places to people who wouldn't necessarily hear those stories or they won't necessarily expect to hear their stories being told on stage so that kind of messaging is you know is all about the the the, the brand that is red ladder that you know what people expect us to do, mm. people want us to do, and people are willing to support us to do. So, you know, it's all, I guess, inextricably linked. And we we just spent a couple of days talking about Badalistas and how, you know, it's quite a passive ask at the moment, and maybe it should be a bit more front and central. So we're gonna have a little look at that in December and just just try and energize that as a, you know, as a platform people might like to get involved. But there's some interesting conversations and again i'm fascinated by all this stuff about belonging and that some of the board members would say well you need to give people something you know mm. and then there's other people on the board who say no no uh, people just want to be involved it's fine you know I, I don't get involved with an arts organization because i want something out of them i want because it, it'd be like i don't know giving to a charity that supports donkeys or something i don't want to yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I want them to save donkeys, you know, and if they send me stuff, that's less they're going to spend on saving donkeys, you know. So, but that's different people with different perceptions on the board, which is why. But they're kind to... of both right, though, the, the, you know, because the community is like, you know, you think of a lot of theatres that are sustained by like friend groups and so yeah. on, which are older people who are donating to the theatre. They go whenever they can and whenever there's a show that they want to see or they go see everything, but they can't yeah. be there all the time. But they're instrumental to keeping it alive. But then, you know, you've got a younger generation of people who are like, yeah, I want to follow you. I want to know everything about you and sort of have some kind of like, you know, Longing. relationship, whatever it was, you know. Yeah, like some association with you, some connection with you, some sort of like I'm involved. Mm. But for that, they need that constant, you know, that constant reactive, you know, the feedback. They need the feedback juice to, to feed back to. Yeah. So I think... I think that's an interesting one. I also think um, because we're an itinerant touring theatre company, to be able to offer a member um, benefits is quite difficult, really, because I can't say that we're playing Leeds next year. We may not. Mm. You know, we'll possibly take a show at the Edinburgh Festival. We'll probably possibly won't. The show we're touring next year is opening at Leeds Playhouse, so it probably won't come back to Leeds. So if you signed up, I can't say to you, you'll get two tickets to see us in Leeds because. Mm. Uh, our playing rooms. We might, I might be able to give you two tickets for a recommend couple of rooms, and it, but that would be three for each anyway. So it's not, it's not a huge. <laughs> so it's a pint. But, it's a, well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's like more than a pint in. Well, yeah. So yeah, I, I'm again, I'm really interested by the the dynamics of individual giving and as to why people do it and what do people expect. And I think what people expect. Because we, we actually do, do play to a, a wide spectrum of society. 
so people so we do you know we have lots of different people engage with us mm. so i think to try and conjure up a scheme that speaks to everyone probably has to be quite bland in a way mm. it's a bit bob Geldof, i suppose it's a bit mm. you know give us your money um this is what we'll do with your money rather than this is what you'll get for your money um mm. but in a slightly less sweary way well possibly not actually i don't know <laughs> When we lost our call funding, there was um, two people who started a campaign called Save Red Ladder. Unbeknownst to us, we didn't even know this was being put together. One was the design company we used for most of our, well, we designed our website and do a lot. We used to do all of our um, graphic design for shows. And the other protagonist was our press and PR manager. And, and she was freelance, but she worked three days a week, I think. So thought of two scenarios. One, we've got kept in the national portfolio, which is the core funded clients of the Arts Council. And second, what if we get kicked out? Mm. They designed this whole campaign called Save Red Ladder. I didn't even know they were doing it. So the day that we found out we've lost our funding, they launched this campaign. Mm. And this was all a, this is all based around a lot of the little. It's called Gears of Tenor. And that was what we were asking people to do. And the idea being that if a lot of people gave us a tenor, there's a fighting chance we'd continue. And it was massively successful. We were in rehearsal for a show on the day we found out. So there was a limit to what kind of noise we could make as people. But they kind of did it for us. And it was, um, I think it was quite a powerful message because it said to the Arts Council, we said, well, we didn't start this campaign. You know, we will see, once we found out about it, we knew we'd done it and we joined in, obviously. But it's quite a statement to the Arts Council that an external body would do this about a theatre mm. company they just cut from their roster. Mm. And I think that, and it's quite, I mean, we got, I think we got £30,000 eventually, which is a lot of tenors. Um, mm. uh, and I think it said to the Arts Council, oh, no, this is a very well thought of, well liked company. Have we actually done the right thing in it? So, mm. you know, we were included back in the portfolio three, three years hence, which was great. So I think there was a quite a powerful message that came about through yeah. that, that fundraising campaign. And yeah, so we, we, we worked with the fundraiser who based, who used to be, um, used to fundraise at the Royal Armouries in Leeds. He's also worked for Eureka in, you know, the Children's Museum in Halifax. Yeah. Um, Royal Armouries also, it's, it's sister organisations, Tower of London. So he used to fundraise for, for the boat. So he's very well thought of and very well versed in trust and foundations but also um individual giving schemes so he's, he's going to help guide us on you know and i think what we'll do is just just use you know uh, there's some talk of you know getting someone to be the patron or you know to relaunch it which which mm. we'll look into and we'll you know we'll ask some actors who who you'll have heard of well we might ask for Jeeves just to do a shout out for us on it and we worked with Pauline McLean, um, who's Mrs. Doyle from Father Ted. She was amazing. Um, mm. And I'm sure she'd come up with a really witty, you know, give us your money kind of quote. So she will, she will, she will. She will, she will. And, <laughs> and the messaging of that will go through all of those platforms, all of the Instagram, the Twitter, you know, hopefully it will be joined up and scheduled so that it doesn't... I think there's some intelligence that says... And I don't know if this is about theatre tickets or whether it's just buying stuff generally, but there's there's six or seven messages that you need to receive either over or subliminally 
that mm. sends you into a customer of that particular product. So it might be seven different emails, but that would be quite boring. But I think there's a tip, tip effect of maybe seeing something at a show, maybe you know, a bit of Twitter here and a bit of Instagram there, a bit of word of mouth, you know, it's all of those mm. kind of intangibles, isn't it? That you know, the thing with social media is where and again, I, I this comes back down to I wish I'd I wish I could pay people more money, was the analytics behind all of this stuff is fascinating, um, mm. if not a bit kind of big brotherish. But there is a lot of intelligence, I think, as to you know how how people react to and from those messaging um, mm. applications. So maybe I don't want to know about it. Maybe I just think, oh, fuck, it's too scary and big brotherish. I don't know. Thank you again to Chris for being my guest. Thanks again to all my guests, and thanks to you, Bugalugs, for listening to this. Next time on Working Hours, I will be talking to someone else. Follow the show on Twitter at Working Hours 3 and on Instagram at Working Hours Pod Leads to find out who and to know when episodes are being released. I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Simon hyphen Treen, Treen, T-R-E-E-N, or you can go to the company page, uh, which is linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Western hyphen studios. Western studios are on Facebooky too, uh, as am I. If anybody who listens to this still goes on there at all. Western Studios, by the way, is my podcast company. If you want to make a podcast in Leeds, whether it's for a cause, a publicity campaign, a product promotion, or your own passion projects, then get in touch with me for support and advice and guidance on it. You can speak with a real lawyer who is actually in Leeds that you can actually work with on making podcast content rather than wading through articles and videos and podcasts about podcasts. Western Studios can take your podcast admin, recording, editing, transcription, etc. Got an inkling that you'd like a podcast but don't know where to go from there? Hit me up at makemypodcast at western-studios.com and let's make your podcast. Save the hassle, save the headache and make your podcast with a Leeds-based in real life podcast producer. Or once again, you could be the bell of my ball and join my Patreon to support the Working Hours project. Go to patreon.com forward slash working hours pod right now and sign up to help me in getting 1000 liners on working hours if i get two more patreons then i pinky promise i'll start putting more info up there about the show on the reg if you're listening to this i assume you have some connection to leeds like living here or being from here if you're such a person in leeds or from leeds and you haven't done a recording for working hours yet then email me now and let's arrange some time to record your working hours episode. This is your show, Leeds. It's all about what you want to make of yourself. If you want to be on working hours, we will need a two-hour window in which to record. I can record in your work time or during your downtime. I have been recording interviews over Zoom for over a year, but I can record offline too. You can appear on working hours anonymously, or you can promote yourself and or your company or brand. Email workinghourspod at western-studios.com if you want to be a guest. Add a short bio and some suggestions of your availability to your email, or just send me your feedback, questions, comments, and queries about working hours. I'm really interested to hear from anyone in Leeds or from Leeds in whatever industry, sector, or role you are in. What is your experience? How do you feel about work? What do you like and not like? What do you do, Leeds? Please remember to like, share, follow and subscribe to this show. Please rate and review Working Hours and I'll see you next time, Arkid.
Working Hours is presented, edited and recorded by Simon Treen for Western Studios, Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org.